And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your life blood, I shall require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from every man. For his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of men. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your offspring after you. We're going to stop there. We're going to look at the covenants next time. So for right now, if you might notice that in that passage there, there's some similarities to what we are familiar with being in chapter 1 of Genesis. So, for instance, in chapter 1, verse 28, God blesses them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And here we have in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, and God blesses Noah. Remember, chapter 1, verse 28, God blessed them. Here he is, chapter 9, verse 1, God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Verse 2 continues, he says, to give man dominion over wildlife, just as he had in chapter 1, 26. So then he says there, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. In verse 28 of that same chapter, chapter 1, he says, and they fill the earth, subdue it, and rule over it. But there's a change here in chapter 9. While he's talking to man about ruling over wildlife, he says this, fear has now become an aspect. He says, now they will fear you, and the terror of you will be in them. Fear has become an aspect of the relationship between man and wildlife. He says here, the fear of you and the terror of you would be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the sky, and with everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are given. This is one of those times where we project what we know so often into a situation or into what we read. Because, for instance... You know, in my mind, I've never been able to walk outside and pick up a chipmunk and, you know, and pet it. I've never been able to walk out. I, I mean, I've had a hard time catching Adler's dog when he's running away from me, you know? And so, like, animals have this thing of, like, more often than not, just walk, not walking up and cuddling with us. And so, in our minds, that's the way it's always been, hasn't it? And we project what our experience has been, and we project it into what we read. That's the reason why so many people struggle with Noah's Ark. Well, how did he get them all on there? Because in our experience, you know, the elephants and the rhinos and the giraffes and the cobras don't crawl up to us and ask us to escort them on. But it appears that in our scripture here today, that this is the first time that animals have a fear and terror of man. And so that could explain how the ark might have happened a little bit for us and how they might have willingly came onto an ark not being afraid of man. 
because we project our situation into them, don't we? It appears that this fear of of man did not happen for animals until after the flood. Because prior to the flood, there must have been some remnant of the Garden of Eden in in that holistic, that that getting along kind of way that had to be in the Garden of Eden. And some remnant of that must have existed up until the flood where the animals and mankind did not have a fear-terror kind of relationship. But now, after the flood, fear has entered into that relational equation. And that fear actually is there for a very very good reason, because it says in verse 3 that every living thing is now food for you. They have a reason to be afraid of man now. He says, because before, mankind apparently only ate the plants. We were vegetarians. That was a terrible, terrible time to live. Vegans would have, I mean, that is the time of vegans. Vegans are actually people who want to go back in history. But after, after the flood, we became meat eaters, and real life began to happen. Because now your menu was steak and potatoes. But notice that in this diet thing here, where he says now you can eat all of them, there's no limitations here. Many of us who are familiar with the Old Testament, we know that with Moses came limitations on diet. No unclean animals. You know, the cloven hoof thing. So pork, as we know, is off limits. Shellfish is off limits. You don't read that in this passage here. That happened with Moses in the Mosaic Law. But here at this time, they, God's people got to enjoy pork which is another great thing, bacon. <laughs> so it was only after the Levitical law that those limitations come in place. And having said that, the, the, this one limitation was there. Leviticus 17, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. So here is this thing. He just said that all meat is good for you, but don't eat the blood. And so you say, Why? Well, many would say because it's a dietary thing. It's a health thing. But here in Leviticus 7, God is explaining that. For the flesh, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. So the flesh was for us. It was for our nourishment. It was for our enjoyment. But the blood, the life of the flesh, was given for sacrifice. It was reserved for sacrifice. The life of the animal was spilled on sacrificial altars. It was accepted by God in a substitutionary death for the life of a guilty sinner. And and that guilty sinner had something to reconcile. And God made provision for that in some way, some symbolic way, with the blood of animals. But the blood of animals was only figurative and, as I said, symbolic because the blood spilled by the Lamb of God, Jesus, was not literal. It was not figurative. It was literal. It was not symbolic. It was real, innocent, human blood paying the penalty for sin and debt that mankind owed. And so it wasn't through, and as Hebrews 9 says, and it, not through the blood of goats and calves, 
But through his own blood, he, Jesus, entered the holy place one for all, having obtained eternal redemption, Hebrews 9.12. And later on in chapter 9, verse 28, it says, And so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, not at this time, but God is setting the table. He's laying out what it's going to look like. So you can have the meat, you can have the flesh, but do not consume the, the blood. And then very soon after this, very soon, but hundreds of years later, God is going to explain the value of that blood and that it is sacrificial, that it is symbolic of covering the sins. Through through blood, atonement for sin is only made through blood. And so here he says in Genesis 9, don't eat the blood. Later on in Leviticus and with Moses, he says the blood is to make symbolic atonement for your sins. And all of that is pointing to someday to the seed of the woman, Genesis 3 that we read about, the seed of the woman who one day present the Messiah for all mankind, and the one day that Messiah will spill blood. But that blood won't be symbolic. And that blood won't be from an animal. It will be from a sinless, spotless man who is the Son of God, who with his blood makes atonement for the sins of those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 5 and 6 steps into This is the thing about Genesis. It is just, you know, you would think, how is it that the, one of the oldest books of the Bible is so pertinent to our day and time and give us so many things that are landmines in our culture today? Verse 5 and 6 opens up another one of those landmines. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from every man. From, this, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Verse 6, here we are. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. He's talking about the death penalty right there. And he's being very straightforward about it. If a man takes another man's life, his life is demanded of him. Well, first of all, there's one little aspect of this that is kind of a a lesser point to this. But he has just given a commandment to Noah and his sons to populate the world. And anything that would limit that commandment being carried out in full would be a problem. And so he says, I want you to populate the world. I want you to fill it, multiply in it, and don't murder each other because that kind of works against that. That's one lesser kind of comment. The greater purpose for all this, man was an image bearer of God. That's what he says. Now, so that's why there's not the same thing about animals. So if if you harm an animal... You didn't have to give your life for it because animals were not image bearers. That's why he said, you know, it's okay to to kill animals for your food. They're not image bearers. Francis Schaeffer said years ago when he was still alive, I sometimes feel that the, the, the hue and the cry against capital punishment today does not so much rest upon humanitarian interest or even an interest in justice. So you hear what he's saying? All those who are, who are opposed to capital punishment... I don't really think it's because they're humanitarians or they're really interested in justice. He says, I think it's because there's a failure to understand that man is unique. The simple fact in Genesis 9-6 where he says this, it's really the reason that punishment for murder can be so severe is that man, 
being created in the image of God has a particular value, and we fail to understand that value in our culture today. Culture is not cool with capital punishment. It's considered in many places and by many people cruel and unusual punishment. But the taking of another human life is a direct affront to God and those that are image bearers. Murder had happened. We know that. In Genesis early, the early chapters, after, before the flood, Cain had murdered Abel. And he was judged by God but not put to death. That's in chapter 4. Later on in chapter 4, um, a descendant of Cain, Lamech, he confesses that he murdered another man for wounding him, he says, in chapter 4, verse 23. And given how God describes the decline of mankind leading up to the flood, where he says that every man's intent was evil and that all of his thoughts were corrupt, it's safe to assume that murder was probably something that happened frequently and happened. But now, after the flood, God has given man a new standard. Murder will cost the killer their life. Later on in Exodus 20, it's in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. Later on in Exodus 35, the law states that premeditated murder would cost the killer their life. And in the New Testament, Jesus does not overrule capital punishment. And this is what happens with people all the time. They say, well, Jesus said, Jesus said, well, God is love, so he cannot be about killing people. Well, that's very true, probably from a human perspective, but not from a divine, eternal perspective, where God is not dealing about whether you said a bad word to your neighbor. He's dealing with the intent of the heart and the sinfulness of your heart. He loves you, but he still demands justice for your sin. And so, for instance, people will pull up Matthew 5, where, he's, this, where Jesus says, You have heard it said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hellfire. Jesus he does this what he does. He doesn't just look at the action. He's always examining beyond that. He's looking at the heart and the intent. And so he's not just saying like, well, you said a bad word. He's not looking at the word. You hurt somebody. He's not looking at the hurt you inflict. He's looking beyond that, and he's looking at the heart of man. That's what happened in 1 Samuel 16, where um, they're choosing the next king of Israel, and they find all the ones that on the outside looked like they'd be great kings, and they find the runt of the litter, and they say, no, it's that one. And it says, for God does not look on the outside, but he looks on the inside. The Old Testament law commanded the death penalty, as you move into Exodus, for murder, for kidnapping, for bestiality, for adultery, for homosexuality, for being a false prophet, for prostitution and rape, and several other things. However, God often showed mercy also when the death penalty was due. For the man after his own heart was a murderer and an adulterer, two that demanded death. And yet God did not take his life in Second Samuel, but he gave him mercy. Jesus did the same thing in John 8. When the Pharisees brought the woman who was caught in adultery, and they bring this woman to him, and she's been caught in adultery, and the Old Testament law says that if she's been caught in adultery, that the punishment is stoning, the punishment is death. They bring her to Jesus, and they say, so what are you going to do with her? And he turns and he says, 
If any one of you is without sin, let him cast the first stone. This is not about Jesus rejecting capital punishment. This is about Jesus, again, revealing the intent and the heart of the accusers. Because their intent was not for justice. They cared nothing about the woman. Because if they'd really cared about justice, they would have brought the man with him as well. What they were looking for was to trap Jesus in the law so that they could persecute him. And what he did was he went right to the heart of their issue. And this woman received mercy as an outcome of that. Some Christians will say, well, how can you, or some of our critics will say, how can you say that you are for the capital punishment, you're pro-death, and you call yourself pro-life? How do you reconcile that? On one end, you say that it's wrong to kill a baby. On the other end, it's, you say it's okay to kill a man, woman for crimes committed. Well, the primary problem with that is that it attempts to create like a moral equivalency of two unequivalent issues between abortion and the death penalty. There's nothing equivalent about an innocent baby's life being taken in the womb compared to a convicted criminal suffering the consequence of their crime. One has committed a crime and deserves punishment. The other has not lived in order to receive any kind of punishment. So, first of all, that's one way of answering that question. So the death penalty should be, in most cases, employed with only the most evil of crimes. It was God who ordained it, and it is God who gives governments the authority to enforce the death penalty. We see that from Paul in Romans 13. And it is entirely consistent to believe that the life of an innocent baby in the womb should be protected while believing that you know, criminals should suffer consequences. That's one thing. So you, say, you tell me that it's wrong to kill babies. It's okay to kill criminals. So then why is it that all you Christians are always so pro-war? except for some of our brethren who have remained pacifists and suffered for it to their credit, to their integrity of their faith? How is it that you can support war in light of Genesis 9-6? Do you not go into war and kill people? Now, I haven't seen, somebody might have to help me, what, Hacksaw Ridge, right, about the pacifist, right? I haven't seen it yet. I'd like to see it, but I haven't seen it yet. But that is that's, is a man who understood This passage is saying that he could not step into a war and kill, and yet he was a soldier. It's his story of trying to live out his faith. Again, credit to those who take a conviction and are willing to suffer for it like that. But we appear to be very zealous about war to many. But we are not to ever be zealous about war to the sense that we are the first ones chanting to bomb them. But we do tend to be that way. There are instances when war was the only option we had. History has proven that. The only way to stop the spread of Nazi regime was to counter their aggression with self-protection and with our own aggression, which was war. When we enforced the death penalty, we were making a statement about the value of life. And that extends to nations and powers that value their life and their ideology over the life of others. 
that they are willing to kill others because of their own ideas, their own political stands, their own form of life, and they step out and they're willing to take the lives of others. And so while diplomacy is always our first choice, but if that doesn't work and it can't work to save the lives of others, then a just war sometimes seems to be an unfortunate option. Not our first one, but it seems to be an unfortunate one. Because stepping in and defending ourselves saves lives. While the image of God in man was damaged in the garden, it was not ruined. It was not completely eradicated. So when a person takes the life, he has taken the life of an image bearer because there is that remnant of the image of God in each and every man, woman, and child. They are representatives of the creator God. We often have to extend that and think through the full meaning of that. That image bearers, are, that being an image bearer and having value to your life does not, is not limited to healthy people who can speak for themselves and have someone who will represent them. Being image bearers extends to those who can defend themselves the least. Being image bearers extends to the fetus in the womb. Being an image bearer extends to the aged and the invalid and the permanently disabled. All of them are sacred. All of them deserve protection. All of them are image bearers. And sacredness of a man's blood does not be curtailed when they are disabled at an old age and they cost too much to keep alive or when they are diagnosed in the fetus as having an issue. Therefore, man is always special. All men and women are special. And they're special in the womb. They're special when they're old and frail. Several years ago, John Piper made this interesting observation about how Americans cheer on Special Olympics. When Owen does Special Olympics and he runs his track, and if I post a picture there, there'll be a hundred people who will say, that's great. This past Friday, a week or so ago, you might have seen on my Facebook page that um, Owen and a friend of his went to the Tim Tebow Night to Shine event, which is um, an event that Tim Tebow does for people of disability of the age 14 and up. And so anyone with a permanent disability of any kind at all can come to this event, and it's called Night to Shine, and it's kind of like a prom for people with disabilities. And they make a big deal of it. He throws nearly $10,000 at every single one of those events. He did over 350 in the United States with several in other parts of the world as well. And so this event is an event to, to celebrate people with disabilities. And everyone loves that. People love to come out and volunteer and be a part of that. But Piper made the observation that while thousands of people celebrate Special Olympics or Night to Shine, but selective abortion still takes 926,000 lives last year. Today, 2,600 babies would be aborted today. And tomorrow, 
and every other day of this year. Do you see his point? We come out and celebrate the achievements of the disabled, but when really the biggest achievement for them is that they were born. The biggest achievement was that they got out of the womb. Al Mohler, in a commentary on November 30th, 2016, he cites the recent rise of children appearing in advertisements and magazines and TVs that are disabled. In particular, he's citing the story of a Downs baby, a Downs child who is in magazines and all. Most recently, Ben Affleck, in his movie The Accountant, um, he was representing an autistic savant assassin. It happens every day. I just want to tell you. I know about this. Right, Owen? All right. Yeah. Every day. I mean, I know it's a movie, but it was still real life, you know? All right? So even though Target and McDonald's and A.C. Moore and Zulily feature children with disabilities, as well as Ben Affleck did, the real fact of the matter is that routinely, nearly all the time, a doctor will encourage a family to abort a pregnancy with a prenatal diagnosis of Downs. 66% of every child that is given a prenatal diagnosis of Downs is aborted. Meanwhile, Zulily will celebrate them. Seems to be something wrong, doesn't there? Seems to be something where there's a disingenuousness. As a matter of fact, what's really interesting is that all of those companies who are using children with disabilities in advertising now, they say it's because of they want to be authentic and transparent in their advertising. You know why? Because all of these people over here, these millennial people, they value that. I bet if they didn't value that, you wouldn't see those people in their advertisements, would you? God says that all life is valuable, that all life, regardless of disability, is an image bearer of God and is a representative of the very God who created them. Therefore, if someone takes the life of one of his image bearers, it should cost them their life, he says. Ultimately, every one of us deserves the death penalty at the divine spiritual level. Because the wages of sin is death, as Romans 6.23 says. And just as Jesus stepped in with a woman accused of adultery, just as, G- as God stepped in and gave David mercy for his sin, God has also stepped in to our sin and said, I'll make provision for you as well in the form of my own son. And so you see, all of this ties together. All of this is coming together in the sense from the very beginning of Genesis where he says the, woman, the, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent and later on, you know, he continues that bloodline and that genetic line through, through Noah. And he's teaching Noah about the value of the blood. And then he steps in with Moses and he teaches Moses and all the people of Israel about the sacrificial nature of blood. And even to the point about Passover, the blood goes over the door of a spotless lamb. And he's pointing, pointing, pointing all the time, pointing forward to something that they're like going, I kind of see it, but I'm not sure. But by faith, I believe that you're telling me what's true, and I believe in that, and I want to partake of that by faith. So he's pointing blood, the serpent, the woman, the seed, sacrificial, symbolic, until one day, one day we arrive at this place. And so here is an entire human race who is deserving of the death penalty, and what do they find? 
that someone has made payment on their behalf so they don't have to pay it themselves. So all of a sudden, everything that we're reading in Genesis and everything we're reading in Exodus and Leviticus and everything else that keeps pointing forward, and when God dips his hand into history and he demonstrates his character and his passion and his, and his, his mercy, all of that is pointing forward to a time and a place when Jesus comes. And everything that was symbolic and everything that might have been a little hazy becomes crystal clear in that moment. And it's not symbolic anymore. It is the sinless Son of God who has stepped into the world platform and now sheds His blood on the behalf of every man, woman, and child to atone for their sin, who by faith step into that and say, I need my sin atoned for. I cannot manage my own sin. I need someone to do it for me and I take Jesus' death to pay for my penalty for my sin. Jesus is the one that is everything in the Old Testament is pointing towards. He is the one who finally gave his life for the life of all mankind. Let's pray.